Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Wheatholter, CEO and founder of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the author of Data Sleuth, Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations. This summer, while at the ACFE Global Fraud Conference, several speakers and friends of the podcast and I got together to play an escape room. Before and after our escape room adventure, I found myself engrossed in stories from investigators around the U.S., and I didn't want the conversation to end. It was these valuable conversations that inspired the format for the next series of investigation game podcast episodes. So for the remainder of 2022, at least, I've invited investigators to join me in sharing case stories from investigations worked in a variety of areas. In this episode, Tracy Conan and Mary Breslin and I discuss cases involving embezzlements from businesses. Tracy Conan has been investigating fraud for more than 25 years, but she didn't always want to be a forensic accountant. With a dream of one day being a prison warden, Tracy went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to get a criminology degree. A class on financial crime investigations reminded her how much she loved Encyclopedia Brown books as a kid. She continued her criminology degree, but added accounting and economics courses so she could sit for the CPA exam. Tracy is a certain public accountant and holds the designation Certified in Financial Forensics and Master Analyst in Financial Forensics. Now Tracy is finding money in cases of corporate fraud, high net worth divorce, and other financial shenanigans. Mary Breslin is the founder of Verisi and an internationally recognized speaker and training facilitator for internal audit, risk, and fraud. When she's not speaking publicly or facilitating trainings, Mary conducts fraud investigations and provides management consulting for internal audit and fraud. Mary has over 25 years of experience experience in internal audit, fraud, accounting and management, including working for global companies like Costco, Barclays Capital, and ConocoPhillips. She has implemented and managed audit programs in more than 50 countries. Additionally, she has led fraud investigations in numerous countries spanning six continents. Mary attended Rutgers University and University of Phoenix, and she is a certified internal auditor and a certified fraud examiner. Welcome to the Investigation Game podcast. I'm super excited to talk today because today I... I'm going to be sharing case stories with Tracy Conan and Mary Breslin, two pros in the field. And today we're going to be talking about embezzlement from a business. So that's all the intro we get. We just got to jump into this. So Tracy, take it away. So I have to be exciting right out of the gates, right? Yeah. Okay. So the case that I chose is one that I worked a couple of years ago, and it involved the general manager of a hotel. It was a hotel chain, right? An individual uh, franchisee with a branded hotel in kind of a a smaller town in Wisconsin. And the company used a bookkeeping service um, to do their books because the owner just had a couple of hotels here and there. And the bookkeeper discovered some unusual transactions. And so they said, we need an internal audit. And so they contracted with a company to do an internal audit. And they found some evidence of theft, they thought, but they weren't confident in the amount of theft or the methods that were used. So that's when they decided to find a forensic accountant to do it for them. And the things that they found uh, were things like entries made to house accounts and group stays, which seemed to adjust cash balances, but they weren't exactly sure how. They found transfers in and out of accounts that didn't appear to be business transactions. They appeared to be kind of nothing transactions. They found strange refunds. And ultimately, they thought there must be a cash theft here, but we're not quite sure. So 
What I had to do when I came in is do a detailed reconciliation of each day's activity. And that sounded really boring to me because, I mean, that just seems so run of the mill. Um, But it actually ended up being really complicated because of what the general manager did with these entries. And so what I started looking at was the cash and the checks that they received. And now you're thinking to yourself, a hotel, doesn't everyone pay with credit card? Yeah, for the most part, people, of course, do pay with a credit card or a debit card. So there was really nothing he could manipulate with that. But when it came to um, banquets or weddings where they would be giving a check for a deposit or um, when they would have events, they had a rooftop where they had events. And there was one particular event that happened once a year. It was a week long uh, festival type of thing that happened in the area. And it was huge, brings in people from all over the country. And so they every night they had a cash bar up there and a lot of money coming in. Um, so those were the kinds of things that were generating checks and cash. And so what I was looking for was every entry that was made that adjusted the cash to see if that was legitimate. And so what I found was that he had accounting entries with a description called due back, which was a description that they would use if there was a refund due to a customer, but customers don't get cash back. So the only way they said you could ever get cash back as a customer is if you came in and put down $100 as a deposit towards a room at the hotel, let's say, and then came back later the exact same day you would get a cash refund. But if you came back a day later and said, I don't want the room anymore, you're not getting a cash refund. And so they knew that cash refunds were very rare. So every entry that had due back for a refund was already suspect. He literally made hundreds of these entries using house accounts. And and that was even more suspicious because those are internal accounts where there would there would never be a refund due. The internal accounts were used to um, move costs from one department to another, right? Or reclassify something. So when he was confronted um, prior to me being brought in, he said that he had been using cash to pay employees and other vendors and that he was making these entries so that the cash would be accounted for. Now, there were some employees who uh, backed up his story that they were receiving some cash under the table, but we didn't think it could be to the extent that I found. So here's what I did very quickly. I determined how much cash and checks were collected every day because the system was recording that and we believed it was recorded accurately. I then compared that to the amount deposited to the bank. Um, And the bank deposits weren't done every single day. So sometimes there was some overlap, but ultimately I was able to figure out what was undeposited cash. And then I looked at all of these adjusting entries and looked at any that might have a reasonable explanation. And I gave him a lot of benefit of the doubt on that. And if there seemed to be a reasonable, like he paid, let's say, a carpet cleaning company. That sounded legitimate. I gave him the benefit of the doubt, even though management said, we're really not sure because what carpet cleaning company is going to take a pile of cash from us. Ultimately, over a two-year period, he had $142,000 of cash that was collected and never deposited. I gave him the benefit of the doubt on about $35,000 that I I said, okay, assuming those are business expenses, that left $107,000 cash missing. Two years, smallish hotel. Dang. So was he, so the general manager was actually putting the, like entering the transactions into the accounting system? Yes. And at some point he and his uh, next closest employee uh, made some comments that, well, we didn't log ourselves in. People would use other people's logins for the computer. And so they tried to further confuse it that way so that we would potentially say, oh, maybe he didn't make these entries and someone else did. Um, But through, through looking 
through the entries, it, it really did appear that the people whose names were on the entries really did make them. Yeah. And so, yeah, the manager, the general manager was making all of these accounting entries. I like the little clues like do back. Do back from who, right? <laughs> right. Well, and I, you know, I did things like I counted the number of entries that he made that were due back versus how much the other employees made that were due back, right? And so, of course, his was off the charts compared to everyone else. And then his explanation was, well, well, of course, I'm the general manager. Well, no, you have actually an accounting person, you know, your, your night auditor or whatever would have been making those entries, should have been, not you as the general manager. Was the case prosecuted? It was. It, and was. it was cash. Wow. Yes. So he um, ultimately ended up pleading guilty and he ended up getting uh, a little bit of jail time. I think he got six months of jail time with work release and two years of probation and a large restitution order that he is paying at the rate of $1,500 a month. So this company went hard after him. They were very well capitalized and they wanted to make an example of him. What we thought was interesting was that upon being fired from this hotel, he got hired at another hotel in town and still has that job to this day. Oh, wow. As a GM? Yeah. Mm. No background check. (laughs) Right. 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 So they went after him immediately with a civil suit and they got the police involved immediately. Um, And what was interesting was my report ended up being a lot more complicated than I like reports to be. I'm I'm always one who likes to break it down super simply, take someone from point A to B to C to D. But these entries were confusing to explain. And I was really worried that the police and the prosecutor weren't going to understand why this cash, why I have proven that this cash is actually missing <laughs> because they were confusing entries. And it was, so yeah. I had this giant, gigantic spreadsheet with every day on it for a two year period with each day individually reconciled and with a code for which type of theft or which, which adjusting entry he made. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess they followed it though. If they got it, they prosecuted, took it and uh, prosecuted so that it was prosecuted at the state level. Yes. You know, something that I thought was interesting that I've been talking to my team about lately is, um, and we have lots of internal auditors that listen to this podcast. So this is a lot of love for internal audit. This is just distinguishing between, you know, an internal audit, they noticed weird things, but then they asked you to come in. And the way I would interpret what you said, hopefully I'm not putting words in your mouth, was they needed to know the story, the story behind and and how to put together the evidence behind what actually happened. Where did that money go? Right. I think that's where fraud investigators and forensic accountants are really beneficial is we know how to present that story and present that data in a compelling way. I think people who don't do fraud all the time, um, they do the best they can with the tools that they have and they, they come to correct conclusions. But when it comes to presenting them, it's not often as understandable as maybe a forensic accountant might put it together. So uh, also love for internal auditors, right? They are holders of all the data and they can find the answer to anything. Um, but I love it when they say, okay, we we need like a little help here to, to fully like close the loop on this fraud. And they know their business and they know the analytics. So they know what looks, so like they know it's like that starting point and then by connecting, either learning how to do a fraud investigation or connecting with forensic accountants or fraud investigators to take that 
to the end. Um, and because you were looking for evidence of the story as well, not just the evidence of the loss. So what was this guy doing to hide it? So that's a really interesting story. So good for this um, group to like really go after him. That's what kind of made this one fun. You know, the the level of detailed work in reconciling every day was a lot more than I anticipated on the front end. I was like, oh, okay, simple reconciliation type of thing. And it ended up being a lot more detailed and a little bit frustrating um, trying to sort all of that out and make sure like, I okay, did I reconcile that day or not? Right. Keeping track of all of that. But it was super satisfying because this company was just not going to let this go. They're like, no, we are holding him accountable for it. Well, thank you, Tracy. Great story. When I joined the financial investigation industry over 15 years ago, my goal was to work as many cases as possible, but getting those first few cases felt extremely challenging. For example, how do I get the casework without the experience? And then how do I get the experience without the casework? And when I get the casework, will I know what to do? So I wrote Data Sleuth using data in forensic accounting engagements and fraud investigations to solve this very problem. It is the book I needed so many years ago. In this book, I explain how to start a financial investigation from case planning to finding best evidence to incorporating non-financial evidence like interviews and open source intelligence, and ultimately how to put it all together for your client or even law enforcement with step-by-step details and case examples. If you want to gain confidence in financial investigations to build your case experience, you need to read my book. Data Sleuth is available on Amazon, Goodreads, or wherever you like to buy books. All right, Mary, it's your turn. What do you have for us? Well, I'm, I'm even more torn now because one of my more recent big cases was a hotel case, a resort case. <laughs> but I think I'm going to save that for another day, Leah, because that one really, the story is really around data analytics more than anything, because similar to, to Leah's story, the, re- the reconciliation was even more than by day, which we had to do by day. So similar, it was interesting listening to your experience because I had a similar one. We also had to do it by individual line item. So we had to follow drinks and food through movement um, because they were using transfer scheme in the system to commit the fraud and steal cash. Um, So that story is more about data analytics. I'll save that for another day. Uh, I'm going to talk about um, something I encountered when I was at a mining company where I, more love to the internal auditors, was the chief auditor. Uh, My background is I'm a lifetime auditor, but I'm also a forensic accountant and been a certified fraud examiner for I don't know how long, 15 years or so. And I showed up at work one day after being uh, out on travel for quite some time. company was a huge mining uh, organization, big global footprint. So a lot of us did a lot of international travel. I'd been gone for a couple weeks. I come back, I pull into the parking lot and there is a $250,000 car parked in the parking lot, like sideways across four spots. Oh gosh. (laughs) Still has dealer plates on it, the whole nine yards. And I knew it was not an executive car because the executives had all just gone through this car buying competition like six months earlier. And they didn't buy fancy cars. They bought like, I think the most expensive one they bought was an Audi R6 or, or Audi A6. And their competition was to see who could get the best deal. Get it over better on the sales guy kind of thing, right? right? Instead of buying Maseratis and Lamborghinis and stuff, they were trying to get the best deal and compete with each other. So 
I'm like, I don't think this is an executive's car. I got to figure out who this is. So I walk in and of course, who always knows everything? The receptionist. So I go straight to her and I'm like, who's got the fancy Audi A8 out there? And she's like, oh, that's Charlie. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, in my mind, because I know who Charlie is. And since I'm the chief auditor, I know how much Charlie makes. And Charlie is either up in his eyeballs to debt with debt, or he's living in a van down by the river. So I walk to my office and I'm thinking about this and having done dozens upon dozens of fraud cases already in my career at that point, I knew that this was a huge red flag. But because somebody bought an expensive car does not mean I can start a fraud investigation on them. I don't have predication, right? So I go to my boss who happens to be general counsel and that's how much fraud we had in this organization. I was in charge of fraud investigations that I reported administratively to general counsel as opposed to the CFO's house, because a lot of the problems were the CFO's house. I still reported the board, of course, but so I go and I tell him about the car and he's like, well, are there any other like suspicious activities or red flags? And I go, not that I know of. And he's like, okay. And what this gentleman did for us was he was in charge of our fleet management. We had about a hundred thousand rolling vehicles in the organization and it was his job. He was hired about a year and a half earlier to come in and right size the fleet, which meant we were selling thousands upon vehicles through auction and buying thousands more to replace them. There was a lot of movement. And we all know fraudsters love chaos. They love complexity and they love volume. Mm -hmm. And we had all three going on in that particular scenario. Another red flag was when right before we brought this guy in, we had audited the fleet management process because we were looking for somebody to hire, to right size it, to fix it. We knew it was a a dumpster fire, what was going on with all of our vehicles. And so we had done this great audit and Charlie kept coming back with the audit going, Hey, here it says that this could be a problem. Why? Very interested in the audit. Uh, This says this could lead to potential fraud. How? Right. (laughs) In hindsight, little too interested. We were just excited. Somebody cared that much about the audit. So we got bamboozled on that one. Um, Now, just because I didn't have predication to start an investigation didn't mean I can't use some of the techniques that fraudsters use, right? So I social engineered them. I waited till it was cake day. We had cake day. A lot of people have cake day in their organizations, you know, prior to the pandemic when sharing food was a thing, you know, celebrate everybody's birthday. And I bumped into him on cake day in one of our bigger break rooms, knowing that he'd never missed cake day, bumped into him being, I hung out there for 50 minutes waiting for him to show up. And, uh, I waited till he had a big old mouthful of cake and I went over to him. I'm like, hey, Charlie, <clears throat> what? Uh, when did you get that brand new car? That is my husband's absolute favorite car. It is gorgeous. Can I take a picture sitting in it and send it to my husband and make him all jealous? <gasps> oh, can I ride it? Can I drive it? You'll take a video and then I can send it to my husband and make him so that thing was corner like it's in rails. And as I'm doing this crazy like female thing, I can just see all the color draining from his face because he knows who I am. <laughs> right? And he knows what I do for the organization. <clears throat> And he says, well, you're never going to believe this. It's, it's a funny thing. And I go, I think I'm not going to believe it in my mind. He goes, this is, this is incredible. You're going to be so surprised when you hear this. And I go, I bet I am. And he says, my wife inherited $250,000 from her inheritance. Always the inheritance. She didn't even know she had. And two things went through my mind. The first one was nonsense. They don't even do that in movies because it's so not believable. The second thing that went through my head was your wife inherited $250,000 and she let you spend 200 of it on a car. Right. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> 
I don't think so. And so we have this moment. I look at him and he knows I know. And I know he knows I know. And I know he knows that I know he knows I know, right? It's like one of those exchanges. And we kind of both walk away. And I go straight to General Counsel and I go, I got him. He's not, this is a problem. And he's like, all right, well, go do your thing. You have, you have permission. And so I pull my team in and I'm like, we just audited this a year and a half, pull out the audit. We know what's going on. Call my data analysts and like get online with the two um, auction houses. We're using two major auction houses. One that was headquartered out of New York state, one that was headquartered out of California. And they had locations all over North America. And the plan was once he finished in North America, he was going to move on to South America, then Australia, then Africa. So this was going to go on for a couple of years, this right sizing. And so we get the data. We get the raw data from the two auction houses. They supplied it to us within hours, both of them. Sent it over electronically. So we had all of the sales, every single sale that had um, been done. We pulled the, the contracts for both of the the deals that we had made with these two auction firms and we looked at them and right away we noticed a couple things because we were looking at it with an auditor eye and you know a fraud examiner eye at this point and we noticed that in the contract the the check for the sale was supposed to be a live check from each of them and it was supposed to be mailed directly to him at the company that's not what normally happens in a, right. in a situation like that it should be a wire transfer it's if you want to send him the reports great but so it turned out he was receiving the check and the mail with the report from both of these. And he had gone down to our bank, down the street, our bank, where we banked, and had opened up three accounts, all three of them being lookalike accounts. One looked like our company. One looked like the auction house company on the north on the, in um, New York. The other looked like the auction house in California. And he would deposit the check. And he was all friendly with the folks at the bank. We interviewed all of them. Um, you know, he went in with the story. Hey, we're doing this special project. We want a special account just for it. And they're like, okay, here, let's sign you up. Right? And then he had uh, electronically, remotely opened up the other two accounts under pseudonyms, right? And he would deposit the account. He'd move the, the funds over to the lookalike account for the auction houses. He would get those reports. He had them mailed to him, but he had also asked that they be electronically sent to him so he could you know, file them electronically. So he received the PDFs. He used Adobe Pro. He changed the report each and every time, took a couple thousand dollars off every single time, uh, printed up a new report, printed out a new new manual check off the, the lookalike account, took that check, took the new report that he had skimmed thousands of dollars off of, folded it back up, put it back in the original envelope and took it to accounting. <laughs> Wow. And it took us uh, about 24 hours to have him nailed to, dead to rights. Like we had it all figured out to the penny using data analytics because uh, we just pulled all the information out of our system, everything that was recorded in accounting, everything that the auction houses had sent us. We went back, we pulled all of the information that he had provided to accounting. We can see where all the numbers had been changed. We had all the original electronic um, reports from the two auction homes. And uh, within about 72 hours, we had him taken out in handcuffs. He stole $1.8 million in under a year and a half. Wow. And he got two years. So uh, what was interesting is I had to go back to my boss and say, hey, I might have taught him how to do this. <laughs> Because he had so much interest in our audit and we kept answering tons of questions for him. And uh, I, I think maybe, you know, we need to think about how we present some information. I certainly don't want to tr 
teach people how to commit fraud. And uh, he was like, okay, well, we'll talk about that. The day after I had that conversation with him, my boss calls me back into the office. He's like, you're never going to believe this. The uh, assistant attorney general for the state of New York just called me. And I was like, okay. And he goes, they have a warrant for Charlie. And I go, what? He's like, it turns out Charlie committed pretty much the same fraud at his last organization. It took them two years to figure it out, though. So after he got out of jail for us, he went, he was tried for that and got another five years. Wow. Do you know how much that case was? Um, I think that case was a little bit less. It was like just under a million. Yeah. That's so elaborate. So much time out of his day doing this, you know, to to think about how to do that. So I guess you actually didn't teach him how to do it if he had already been doing no, it. No, I didn't. That was My validation was finding out that he was, uh, you know, had been doing it pr- prior to us. He was probably um, needling us for specific information that he needed probably trying to find what would be the the most likely approach for stuff but yeah wow. and to quote mary fraudsters like chaos complexity and volume yes right? so true mm-hmm. yeah because yep. they can hide in it right it can hide in plain sight and that's why um Anybody who's listened to me speak before knows I was a very early adopter of data analytics. I've been doing it for over 20 years. And uh, to me, that's my my suit of armor is the data analytics, because you're not going to hide in chaos, complexity and volume if I'm looking at your stuff. That's awesome. What a, what a fascinating uh, <laughs> scheme for this guy, you know, because in a larger organization, like in smaller organizations that can't afford to maybe have the recommended segregation of duties and internal controls, you know, we can kind of see, okay, this is where the risk would be. But in something like this, he had to interview you guys to see, okay, where are the loopholes here? Because there would have been internal controls, segregation of duties. He he created yeah. his own loophole. He was heavily involved in negotiating the contract with the auction houses because that's what he was hired for. This was his mm-hmm. fleet management was his career. And so the lawyers, you know, I spoke to our our legal counsel team afterward. They were so focused on certain terms and conditions. And this is what happens, period, with professionals is we get blinded because we're focused on one little aspect of something, right? Um, This is cognitive bias. We talk about this all the time, that streetlight bias. We get very focused. That's what was happening. The lawyers were very focused on particulars about the legalese, and they did not even notice when he changed the like remit to information so that it came to him. And it's not something they would have like picked up on because it would, oh yeah, he's in charge, you know, and they kind of would have just like breezed right past it, which I'm sure more than one of them read it and then just, it didn't click that that Mm -hmm. was problem. You know, an accountant would go, wait a minute. (laughs) No, why would we ever, we would never want paper checks risk, you know, but the, the legal team didn't even notice they will. They did from that point forward. I'm sure that became a checklist item when it came to contracts after that, but he created the loophole. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, to kind of piggyback off of both of your stories, I have a smaller case that was just a several hundred thousand dollar loss, but this Uh, It was a small business owner in oil and gas, kind of oil and gas consulting, so a really small team. And uh, so the bookkeeper, of course, handled everything, trusted her for years, yada, yada. One day, he just notices something's wrong with cash. He's also an accountant and is like, gosh, I really think we should have more money than this. So he goes and looks at his bank statements and then notices that there are credit card payments paid out of the bank account. And he says, we don't even have a credit card like this? Why are these being paid? And and there were several, and there was some confusion about the credit cards and then also just kind of some weird purchases. 
that he noticed. So he decided, you know, he hired, contacted his attorney and then he, they confronted the subject and said, hey, we want you to go through all of these and identify all of the loss. Uh, we want you to tell us, you know, we know these aren't for the business, so we want you to identify it. Well, then they called us and said, hey, we want to put together a restitution agreement and she's just going to agree to pay this back, but we want you to check her numbers. So we said, okay. And um, so we go in and of course, and this is how it kind of piggybacks both of these. So we used our data analytics or what we call our data sleuth process to run something really simple. First of all, just our source and use, which says, here's where money came from, here's where money went. And so we wanted to verify, all right, the business owner knows about all these credit card payments and maybe a couple other payroll that looked a little weird, but we wanted to see, you know, is this completely, I mean, she said she stole this money and she's marked all the bank statements saying, yes, I did this, I did this, but there's no way just looking at bank statements that a subject can quantify all of that, you know, and, and get that all right. Plus, why not skip a few? I mean, she didn't know if somebody was going to check her work. So we run our source and use. And in doing so, we actually discovered that she had created a ghost vendor, a fake vendor. And it looked very oil and gas related. And um, so nobody had picked that up. And that was a couple hundred thousand dollars more. Then, of course, she had skipped, just accidentally skipped a few extra payroll payments to herself and, you know, things like that. So I think all in all, our total was over $500,000 to this company where beforehand it had been just a few hundred thousand dollars. I mean, a few. The owner was still mad no matter what, right? But we ended up quantifying this larger loss. And so I think that that is one of the benefits in a fraud investigation of even when the uh, business owner says, okay, we found this issue by using data analytics, by looking at what we call our source in use. And then we also ran our interesting data findings where we run a bunch of analytics on bank and credit card and payroll information to identify, you know, hey, these things look weird from a data perspective. Um, nine times, I don't think there's been a case yet. We thought we would have one case. It was a uh, theft from a bank. We thought maybe they had quantified their loss accurately and then we just needed to verify it as a third party. But to date, we've never had a client who captured 100% of the loss. You know, we've always found more um, by using data analytics. So that was a, she ended up since, you know, it's really funny because the owner was like, if she'll just pay me back, I'm not going to prosecute, you know, all these things. And he was going to go the state route. And then whenever he saw that she lied to him, not once by, you know, just how she was stealing, but twice in identifying which of those payments had been hers uh, or for her benefit. Oh yeah. It was, you know, gloves off. Like <laughs> he was taking her. Uh, that's a new one for me. I've never heard of the victim going back to the fraudster and going, tell me how much you took. <laughs> Spectacular. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> this I'm my, my clients, so how much do you think is missing? And they say, oh, you know, we think maybe $100,000. Okay, my rule of thumb is multiply that by three, and that's probably the number that's really missing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I agree. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Yeah, this guy, this client was funny because he really didn't want to pay professionals to figure it out because he was an accountant. And so he just thought, well, I'm just going to go ask her. But yeah, if she lied to you once, she's probably going to lie to you again. You know, that's what we you kept telling you. never admit to everything, ever. Right. Even yeah. when you have it all in front of you, they don't admit to all of it. I know. I know. It was just a mistake. That's all. <sighs> just a mistake that it went into my bank account and I spent it. But 
<laughs> it's my bank account and I spent it. Right. Well, Tracy, Mary, this has been so interesting. I love these stories. This is so much fun. Uh, Tracy, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? They can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Tracy Conan, or they can go to my website, sequenceinc.com for the company name Sequence Inc. Yeah, that would be good to know. And then Mary, what's the best way for somebody to contact you? Same thing. You can find me easily on LinkedIn, Mary Breslin, or you can find me through my company website, Verisy, V-E-R-R-A-C-Y. All right. Perfect. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Investigation Game Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. To learn more about our investigation services and resources, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you have an investigation case story you'd like to share on a future episode, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.